Have you noticed we're not the home team anymore? Because some of us in here are old enough to remember a time when it felt like we kind of were the home team. You know, there were a lot of the towns, cities, wherever you grew up, uh, most everyone more or less agreed with a very, at least, at least a skeletal Christian view of the world. Doesn't mean they were all good Christians, does it? <clears throat> and it doesn't mean they didn't have little disagreements. Denominations would differ. But <clears throat> you could count on the fact, once upon a time, in a society, that uh, that most people basic agreed on basic things. And again, that's something that might have been taken for granted for a long time. Other people in other parts of the world would have said, you're lucky, and don't ever take that for granted. <laughs> well, well, you know, now uh, we're starting to get a little bit of the vibe of what that feels like, those people in other parts of the world, because we are not the home team. We do not represent our just the, the, the most basic things that we believe is not necessarily representative of, <clears throat> of, the, of the majority, especially in the most packed parts of the country, that is, the biggest cities, and especially in the most influential places. What are the most influential places? Well, media. Everyone, everyone gets their news somewhere. Entertainment. Everybody, everybody consumes a lot of entertainment. And that includes music, and that includes sports, and everyone's taking all that in. Um, also, social media now. Social media. All those kids are on six, diff seven different platforms at once, and that's what they're doing all the time. They're scrolling. They're looking. They're looking at everybody tweeted this and that. Tweets, tweets, tweets. People tweeting stuff. They're looking at their Instagram. You know, they're looking at their uh, Snapchat and uh, looking at their Facebook, and they're looking at even uh, what's the one with the videos? TikTok. People, they're looking at that stuff all the time. So, when we look at those areas I just mentioned, <clears throat> we are our view is certainly <clears throat> not the majority view across all those, is it? In fact, in some of those, your view, where you see the world wouldn't even be allowed on them. I mean, not in any prominent way. You would be banned from them. So that's the feeling we're in. So what do we do? Well, I, I really hope to help people understand the world we live in. We're, we have great mission statements, but it's hard to actually do them. And <clears throat> one of our things when we get together, as far as what we learn, is to understand how people think and how, what this, what's going on around us. So we started this study of <clears throat> what I call critical theory. I didn't just call it that. A lot of people call it that. And there are a couple of weeks' worth that we could look through here. This is just sort of catching us up. And I began by just sort of laying out a bunch of terms for us. A lot of words, you, some of you knew some more than others. And then I talked about what this is. What do they believe? And then we started to say, well, where did this come from? You know, everything comes from somewhere. Everything has influences somewhere. It's kind of funny to me the way that a lot of people today will look at traditional views and they'll say, you know, <clears throat> a lot of these traditional views you hold, Christian views, views even, even patriotic types of views, a lot of your views, you know, they come from these people. They come from these dead people from way back and 
why should I care what they said? In fact, we should go ahead and just tear their statues down. Uh, those are just a bunch of old, gone, bygone people who lived. But the truth is, these, the, the views, the core philosophy behind a lot of these movements right now that you see on the news, that you see in the streets, are dead people from way back. Just the same. Just the same. Uh, so it's really a little bit hypocritical. It's one of about 10,000 points of hypocrisy we could point to, but it's a little bit hypocritical to say your views come your views come from uh, a lot of people who are who are who are dead and gone. Well, you know what? So do theirs. So do theirs. They don't always realize it because some people don't. Some people just get on the bandwagon as it comes by, and they don't know how many miles that bandwagon traveled before it got to them and who was driving it back then. They just saw it coming. All their friends were on it. It looked like the thing to do, so they jumped on it. Today, this critical theory idea is something of a bandwagon, but that bandwagon has definite roots. Now, I know this for a fact, because I went to school plenty of years ago, you know, uh, and I started learning some of these things back in the early 90s, and then I kept learning some more about it in the late 90s, and seminary even, and stuff like that. And then I started teaching classes where I kind of still, you know, read in these kind of things. And I saw it. And then I got into university settings, faculty meetings, all this. I read their emails. And I see how, how prominent these things are. I know, I already knew their history somewhat. We need to so we can understand where this is coming from. So we started then, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a very important old dead guy named Marx. He's, he, he's long gone, but his leg, he, he cast a long, and if I may say dark, shadow across the last hundred years, and even now. And, and these notes, we won't go back over them, explain, though, some of the basics that have influenced this critical theory. You see that I pointed out things like this idea of class struggle, materialism, Revolution, activism, things like that, and the idea of a perfect world that we will build where there are no classes, there, there's no caste, everyone makes the same salary, no rich, no poor, one common humanity of belief, um, and, you know, uh, it'll all be fantastic. That's the idea. Pointing out what specifically? All of this stuff is right out of Karl Marx. Mm-hmm. Uh, call it Mar- calling it Marxism. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, stating that. In, and and media has let it get through. I don't know if it's accidental or, or what, but some of evidently the, enough, they have enough clout that they publish what they say. Mm-hmm. One of the important things is is so that when we're saying all this, and I'm doing all these things on Marx, that's just not some kind of a slander. In other words, I'm not just uh, I don't just want to make people look bad, so I want to associate them with someone that they wouldn't like. You know what I mean? I'm not I'm not just calling them a name. It's not like you say to someone, "Oh yeah, well that's just Marxist," and then they might say, oh, "How dare you?" These these people today who lead these movements and founded these movements, 
They don't say, how dare you, if you say that's Marxism. They say, you know, darn straight it is. He's my guy. There, there was some, vi- there was a video last week of one of the founders of the uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement. One of them is founded by like two women, I think, and one of them, and it's a couple of years old, but she's she's saying, I am a trained Marxist activist. That's what I am. This is not a slur. This is self-identification. Mm-hmm. I'm a Marxist. So it's important to know what does that word mean. If that's what you are, I should know what that means. And it means these things that we talked about that are in the notes. That's why I, I like having the notes for long term. Go back and consult. You pay attention to these notes in the days to come. I can promise you, you will have reason to go back and look at them. Keep watching the news. Keep paying attention. There's an election coming. All that. You're going to. There's going to be so much of this stuff coming down, uh, coming down the pike, <clears throat> that you will have reason to come back and be reminded of these things we're talking about. You're going to see this. More And also, I think these notes can be helpful uh, to give away. I'd like to go over them uh, with, uh, I was talking about with some of the leaders, Joseph and John, and talk about, make sure they, we understand, because you, you know who can use this the most? Younger people. I'm looking at some of us, we're like, hey, what, this, this doesn't have as much chance to influence us, because I don't see anyone in here who is an old 60s radical hippie. I just don't see that type in here. Your beard notwithstanding. That's, that's not who... But there are people... There are people who are of senior citizen age who are that. They typically have tenure at universities right now. And they're, they're just old... They've been Marxists since the 60s. They never stopped. And the culture finally caught up with them. Uh, they've been Marxists all along. But most people in that age category are not like that. Are more traditional and conservative. So you say, well... Oh, why do I need to worry about this? But you have kids, you have grandkids. I can promise you, with what they're drinking in every day, it's it's filled with this. It's filled with this right now. This is just a trend. It's very trendy right now. So this brings us then to the next major influence on whatever page this is. It's at the top. It says main historical influences. I didn't put page numbers on this. And it says the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School. All right, again, I read a little bit about these in my school days a long time ago, and you know what happened? I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting and a little crazy, and I forgot about it. Because it wasn't it wasn't terribly relevant back then, you know? Um, you know, I think I remember in seminary days, I had a few classes where they would sort of make us study some of these things to understand things about history and all that. And some of some some of the guys in the classroom would say things, you know, would say things like, "Well, this stuff is weird and non-Christian, and I'm not worried about this. I'm going to go serve at a church somewhere. I'm not going to I'm not going to run into any people think like this." Uh, well, you know, that was 25, however, 30, you know, years ago. Those some of those same guys uh, got older. I mean, thankfully I didn't, but a lot of those guys got a lot older over all these years, and they are probably now vaguely remembering some of these concepts because now they are seeing these ideas. So, who are these people uh, called the Frankfurt School? Well, I won't read all these notes to you, but you can sort of see this goes back to the 1920s. In between the two world wars, some of these scholars get together. These are academic types, 
And they were influenced by who? Marx. They loved the ideas of Marx. And they thought, hmm, we really think he's got great ideas. But they they get together and, they're, and they start to sort of uh, extrapolate Marxist ideas and apply them to other fields, to all kinds of different areas. Some of them were psychologists or sociologists. So they start to take Marxist concepts and see them here, see them there. Even sort of like, is there a way to do this this Marxist critical idea, this critique, even in something like literature? Well, some of them started doing that stuff too. So you see here they were, they, they founded the Institute for Social Research. And this is in Frankfurt, that's what they're called the Frankfurt School. It doesn't necessarily mean they built a building and hung a sign and said, this is the Frankfurt School. It means that there was sort of a group of them who all thought the same. And they recruited other scholars that thought like them, and they sort of formed a, a think tank of their own where they all kind of agreed and became very active. Now, ironically, it takes money to build these kind of things. And, uh, well, what do you know? They, they, they relied on good old capitalist dollars to fund their school. It's kind of how this always goes. You know, one of them, you know, remember Frederick Engels had all that money to help support Marx. How, how, where did he get his money? His father was an industrialist. Uh, how did this school get founded? Well, this, this gentleman, Felix Weil, had a, uh, a father who <clears throat> had gained a fortune uh, because of the uh, grain business, and that's how they funded it. Um, there's always an irony there. Well, so, so they begin to do this, and so in 1930, here's this gentleman named Max Horkheimer. These are mostly Germans with these great names. Horkheimer. I can honestly say I've never met anyone in my life whose last name was Horkheimer. But there you have it. Um, and he would be the leader of this thing, the director, for, for a long period of time. And again, his chair was endowed by someone with money. Uh, so they start to make this interdisciplinary. They're applying Marxist ideas all over. And Horkheimer is the guy that they think kind of coined this term critical theory to do this sort of thing. Now, along came the Nazi party gaining power, which at first they thought maybe this would be good for Germany because Marx told us that the people would rise up and usher in a great, wonderful new... And here we have a socialist party. Sounds good so far. But this socialist party gave power and elevated a man who was, uh, you know, a little bit of a fascist. And so they realized, oops, this thing turned south we got to get out of here because um, this, this socialist party is going to put the clamps down on us and not give us free speech. So they left. They went to Geneva. And then where did they come after that? Good old US and A. Settled in New York City, 1935, and sort of became affiliated with Columbia. Again, remember, in order for Marx to have the free space to develop his ideas and write about them, he had to go to London, one of the freest cities. For these guys to operate their Marxist school, where do they wind up? In the USA. It's another, another irony that you always have to pay attention to. So these guys had a problem that they were trying to work out. And as I describe under this heading that says, Important Ideas from the Frankfurt School, you see, these guys were trying to figure out why didn't capitalism die the way Marx said it would. Mar Marx said... The Communist Manifesto said, capitalism produces its own grave diggers. 
they will, and so it will die, and the new thing will come in, and that will be the communist thing. And it, it, it just didn't happen. It didn't happen. They waited. It didn't happen. Uh, there, the, the workers didn't rise up. There weren't revolutions. It transformed it all. Also, as I said, they were dismayed about the fact that the, quote, socialist party in their own homeland of Germany turned out to be this dictatorship. And that bothered them, too. What happened here? Well, this, so, so then they, they, they begin then to not just follow strict Marxism, where he just focused on class struggle and economics, but instead they became what some people call neo-Marxist, where they take his ideas, but now they're going to think, reinterpret it and think about it differently, and they start applying it everywhere. And some people call it cultural Marxism, because now they're applying it to media, entertainment, to everything. So here are some of the key ideas to know about from this school that you will see today. And the first one that I have listed there is just critical theory itself. Now that may seem strange because this whole thing I'm calling critical theory, but because the, the idea, that word and the main idea behind it was actually born in this school. Because as I said, this guy Horkheimer, in 1937, he wrote a thing called Traditional and Critical Theory. Very influential. There's the term. The basic synopsis here is, he says, you know, we sociologists, he's a sociologist, we've typically just analyzed society and try to describe it and understand it and explain it. That's traditional theory. But what we should be doing isn't traditional theory. What we should be doing is critical theory, meaning we take this Marxist view of, of, of everything we're studying in society, where we critique it and we challenge all the things we think uh, uh, are behind the scenes and all of its guiding assumptions and its systems, remember, systems are important here in this way of thinking, and the point is to change them, to change them. So it's sociology that's activist because you're trying to be a crusader to change things. That's the idea of critical theory. So another idea then, the second one on the next page that comes from this school. Now here's a word for you, huh? How often you see this? Cultural hegemony. What? Hegemony is just a two-dollar word for dominance or control or power. But they like to use it. They like to use it. even today. If you even today you read the contemporary people, they'll use that word. So you got to know that word. Well, these these guys in this school had some influence. They've been influenced a little bit by this Italian Marxist who had written about this a guy named Antonio Gramsci. He, he wrote about the idea that, you know, he said, um, he said, here's the thing. Marx promised that what would happen, and it didn't actually happen. Why not? Well, the reason is because there are all these other factors that he didn't account for. That is to say, it's not just about the wealthy capitalists, and it's not just about the government. It's about the culture. That's why it's cultural. See, traditional hegemony would just be political. A dictator just says, here's how it is. A king. But this is cultural. There's a cultural power. And what is it? He says it's the dominant ideas, perspectives, the norms, the customs, the values. Because at this time, you had the beginnings of mass culture. That's what Horkheimer called it, mass culture, which we take, we know that today. It's all around us today. We live in it. But you know, there was a time when there was no mass culture. There was just town to town, city to city. There was immediate community cultures, but you wouldn't be influenced by people living hundreds of miles away in a different city. 
because you don't talk to them. You know, it wasn't until it wasn't until mass media, which first was mass print media, of course, <laughs> before there's radio and everything. But even mass print media, we have to remember what a big deal it was. The printing press and the idea that there would be some publication that gets printed that goes way out there to everybody. So the people in that town, in that city, in that town over there are all reading the same thing. Uh, so that what they all will understand what's happening in the world, what the perspective on that is, and the, this publication will, will decide what's worthy of telling them. What story should they know about? What story should they not know about? And how will we describe it? And what are the facts we're going to give? And our information is what all these people in all these towns and cities are going to believe. That's power. That's mass media. Again, print media first. But it was almost like the internet at the time. It was a huge thing. These guys start to look at that and say, you know, this has power. We didn't account for it. We, we Marxists thought it was all about the big industrial capitalists and their money, but it's also about culture. And whoever owns these, this media and whoever does all this controls people, and they become passive, and they just, they just imbibe it. And that becomes the narrative of the ruling class. And, you know, this Italian guy even said that what we call common sense is something that he said, that's just, that's the system of thought that reinforces and justifies the people at the top who benefit from it. It's a little bit, um, it's, a little, it's got a little conspiratorial element to it, and it's a little bit cynical, well, we can't believe anything, but like we sometimes think that now, there's some truth to that always. They even thought that then. So they weren't entirely wrong to recognize that. We'll see later what the current, what the contemporary writers do with this idea, uh, because one of the great, one of the funny ironies to me is, these gentlemen were saying this at a time when most people disagreed with them. Like they didn't have, they were, they, they were Marxists, but you know most people weren't, especially in the U.S. and Europe, and so they felt like, oh, the cultural hegemony is against us. But it's funny for me to hear people say that now who are, who think these... Because now they've got control of it all. And now we're the ones saying, yeah, you guys are the ruling narrative now. You got it. You got all the levers of the meat culture now. But they still say this stuff. So it's an idea they got from these guys. Okay. So the next one you see there, in quotes there, the next important thing from these, this school is called repressive tolerance. I use the phrase because it's the title of an important essay written by one of these guys, a Frenchman named Herbert Marcuse. He joined the Institute in 1933. Then he became an American when he had to flee, and he left the rest of his life, long life, here. He, uh, he joined the effort, the, the, government, the U.S. government employed him during the Second World War because he had inside knowledge about Germany. And Germany was kind of a big deal in the Second World War. So he worked for the U.S. government for what was the precursor of the CIA, an expert, one of their leading experts on the Nazis. And he worked for the State Department for years, and then he starts teaching at some of these Ivy League schools. But he was a Marxist all throughout. He, was, he, he agreed with the Frankfurt School. And he's also a psychologist, so he had a lot of Freudian ideas in his mind. That doesn't help you either <laughs> to have those ideas. 
And so then came the 60s. He's an older guy in the 60s, but he but he he became a sort of uh, intellectual godfather of the 60s radicals. They started calling him the father of the new left. Well, what's important about this essay he wrote, though, that's, that needs our attention? Marcuse's essay here, Repressive Tolerance. Now, you hear a lot about tolerance today. We've been hearing this for like about 10 years now. Tolerance has been an important word, right? Have you heard this? People talk about tolerance. You must practice tolerance. You should practice tolerance. Now, we, we, we could easily say, genuinely, that we truly believe in tolerance. And, in fact, that's one of the cornerstones of all of Americanism, if you will, is uh, toleration is what they used to call it in the older English, toleration. And what does it mean? Well, basically it means that I can, I can handle and I can allow and I can live with you having a totally different view from mine. And I may not like it and I may disagree with it. I may think it's, I may think it's disgusting. I hate your view. I can't believe you think that way. But you know what? All right. See you tomorrow. You know, I mean, it's like that. See, that's tolerance. Tolerance means I put up with views I totally disagree with, and I still treat you in a civil way. A civil way. See, now, intolerant societies say, you believe what? Okay, arrest him. That's what an intolerant society does, traditionally speaking. There, and there have been plenty of those. That was the norm in some places. And in some places today, it still is. There are some things, uh, if you were to stroll down the streets of um, Iran, that you better not say. You, some views you better not go out and just start espousing out loud. <laughs> you will not be tolerated. You, uh, you could go into North Korea... And the intolerance, the intolerance is so high that uh, you might accidentally step in it, just not even meaning to, and find yourself in a world of pain because, uh, yeah, they don't just they don't just put up with views that they don't, they don't that, the, that the the power structure doesn't like. But toleration is a, is a, something that the West rooted in a Christian understanding because see the New Testament says that uh, Christians are to, are to practice. Tolerance. Does that mean Christians are to go around agreeing with everybody's view? No, that's a lie. That's dishonest. We don't agree with everything everybody says. But we use persuasion. And if you disagree with us, and if you say, I can't stand your view, Jesus was not the Messiah, I, can't, I don't want anything to do with him, if he even existed, I don't even believe in any of it. Uh, so, you know, if they say all of those things, you are to shake the dust off of your feet and politely go about your life. That's tolerance. Intolerance would be trying to get them arrested, or, I mean, the worst intolerance would be, I'm just going to put a knife right through them. You disagree with me? <laughs> you get beat for it. You're, you get killed for it. You get punished in some way. Or, lesser versions of intolerance would be, what you believe what? I'm going to your boss, and I'm going to put pressure on your boss to fire you. Because I don't like your view. I'm going to try to get you fired. Though all of those would be intolerance. We believe in tolerance. It's a wonderful thing. First Amendment, freedom of speech, all that stuff. But check out, though, what, what, what he was saying in this um, essay here. Uh, and and, and if, you're, if you're paying attention today, you will know that there are echoes of this right now happening. So, 
he gives this, and what he does here is he challenges the idea of just wide open free speech. And not and not out of danger. Like, you know, we all know famously you're not allowed to say run into a crowded theater and say fire. <laughs> now, you know, someone could say, what about my free speech? But uh, the only reason is because that hurts, that's, that, is, that is almost certain to cause pain to people. There are very few examples like that. Calling in a bomb threat, yeah, you'll get in trouble for that. Free speech won't cover you when you call in a bomb threat. So, that's not what he's talking about. Marcuse said that the dominant system of thought is so ingrained that the playing field is just not level. So, he said, what he called, quote, indiscriminate tolerance, that's wide open tolerance. That's just, that's what we, that, that's what we tend to practice in the U.S. He said that leaves some voices unheard or marginalized. And, see, the pro-capitalist, you know, free market point of view is everywhere throughout society in its oppressive kind of uh, ways to keep people in place and so on. And it has such a strong voice, you see, that it practices its own kind of repression and its own kind of intolerance, and it's a totalitarian thing. And so what we have to do is we have to tweak the idea of free speech. And uh, basically by tweak, I mean, you know, we have to curb it, tamp down on it. So he advocated what he called liberating tolerance. Doesn't that sound good? That's a wonderful term, liberating tolerance. But what he meant is... um, what he meant is some people shouldn't be tolerated quite as much. Look at his, these are words from him. He argued that the fight, here's a quote, the fight against organized repression and indoctrination may require apparently undemocratic means. These would include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from groups and movements that promote aggressive policies, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion. And then he says a little later, quote, liberating tolerance then would mean, and how blunt is this, would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. Well, now, I appreciate just the very straightforward admission of that. He's like, see, the rules work like this. You ever played a game with a kid and they just make the rules (laughs) on the spot and they don't even try to hide it? They're like, no, see, if I get... No, see if my if I lo- if I lose then I lose no- then I get points. If you lose, you lose. I'd say just make them up, and it just favors them. And that just sounds like what he's saying there. But that's important. See that I that that new idea of tolerance that is is really important because we've been dealing with this for years now. I mean, man, it was 20 years ago or so that I started to notice that tolerance had been redefined already. Mm-hmm. It had been redefined to mean you have to agree with me. That's what happened first. Um, tolerance meant agree with me. Because if you um, were in some settings, workplaces, some universities, some social settings, and you expressed a view that wasn't in, a, in accord with everyone else's, like let's say every there, everyone where, there was pro-Palestine, you know, and you said, well, you know, I think Israel, blah, 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 that was considered intolerant. Or more, like, more to the point, really, um, it was practiced in... Um, so if someone had traditional views about marriage, okay, and they said that, in some settings, that would be they would have been said called very intolerant, even though they are per, even though true tolerance 
they may practice perfectly well, which is, you all disagree with me, and that's okay. I'm not going to be mean to you at all, you know, in any way about that. I just disagree. But they would be called intolerant. Uh, what was partly silly about that whole thing is it was sort of logically goofy because, you know, think about it. In order for me to practice tolerance, what what does there have to be in order for me to even practice tolerance? There has to be disagreement. If you and I agree on everything, it doesn't make any sense if I say I, pra- I tolerate you. We agree. There is no reason for me to have to tolerate you. We agree. Intolerance only is only even possible in a context of disagreement. And yet what they were telling us, again, back in the 90s even, is if you disagree, that's intolerant. Strange. And now, and now we're getting some of this, this what this speech, what that essay talked about, where a lot of those who subscribe to this are saying, you know, free speech is kind of overrated, frankly. And free speech, I've read some of them say, free speech, that's a... That is a tool of oppression that some people use, you know, to say things that are hurtful and harmful. One of the things we will see, because after we're done, you know, having looked at the backgrounds and all this, we will now start to actually look at right now some of the some of the writings and textbooks and everything, what they're saying now, current critical theory. And one of the and one of the things you're going to see is that feelings and emotions are a major part of this. Um, one of the biggest priorities is feeling safe. And people will get in big trouble because someone will say, they expressed a view and it made me feel unsafe because it was disagreement. And it made me feel unsafe. Um, so, there right now there are groups very, very actively, very actively and aggressively uh, coming after big-time corporations, and even coming after social media. And what they're telling them is, you have got, you have got, basically, you have got to restrict free speech, is what they're saying. We don't want those people posting their stuff on Twitter, Facebook, all those things I mentioned that all the kids read, you know. There are activist groups saying, I don't want any kid ever to scroll Twitter and see someone tweet a viewpoint that isn't this one. Because so what they do is they say it's dangerous, it's hate speech, it's terrible, it's gonna, you know, so you must ban it. And they're putting a lot of pressure. They do not like free speech. So that comes partly from this. Let me just mention two more writers here that I put in here. There are some writers that have been influential that don't come from that quote Frankfurt school, but they're still influential and they share in common. They're generally just what I would call postmodern. All right. When I was again, when I was in school, when I was in seminary, we read we read postmodernism and all the postmodern guys. I even had one professor, believe it or not, in the seminary. Believe it or not, and he was very much. Now he's, you know, he got identified as a Christian. And he read Christian postmodern thinkers, but still, it was odd to me. I took a class from him. He's a nice guy, but I could never quite get on board with how he saw things because he he took a postmodern view, which sort of is, you know, subject has a lot of subjectivity in it. Well, at any rate, these two gentlemen, a couple of French guys, two important things that come from them. This guy is Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida. His main contribution is the idea of deconstruction. 
All right, the French, the French guys will say deconstruction. If they're Cajun, they'll say deconstruction. Deconstruction. What does it mean? Well, it's kind of similar to the critical approach that Marxist stuff, the Marxist critique. To deconstruct anything, an idea, a concept, a system, or even a text, even a text, a written document. To deconstruct it means you take it apart, you dissect it, you look at all the hidden things you think are there, every assumption, every kind of presupposition, you look for the internal motives and contradictions you think might be there, you look at any kind of subtleties, any kind of things that might show um, might show biases in the, what the reader said that don't agree with your values. And what happens in deconstruction is I take a text, and after I deconstruct it, I size it up, I critique it, I do all that, and then I become the authority on what it really means. I'm no longer just an interpreter of it in an objective sense. I now am an authority, and what that and, and I open up, see new possibilities of meaning for that text. And that text now can mean what it means to me. And guess there are some pretty important documents that have been quote deconstructed in this way. One of them would be that thing called the Constitution. And so, you ever hear the debate about lawyers and the Supreme and judges in the Supreme Court, and they say, "Well, do you are you a strict constructionist or an originalist, or do you believe in a quote living constitution?" See, a living constitution is a text like this that I can read new things into it, and and there and, and the Supreme Court has at times discovered things in the text that were never there before because they say, well, we're updating it. But they're just reading contemporary notions into the words. That's part of what deconstruction does. And don't you know that it also has been done to the Bible. There is deconstructionist understandings of the Bible. And once you go down that road, the Bible can say anything. It can say anything you want. So that's what we get from him is that idea. And then the other gentleman I mentioned here is another French guy named Michel Foucault. And his whole thing, and they love to quote this guy a lot, is he focused on power. They don't quote him because he's so quotable, because frankly, he's almost he's so hard to understand. You know, some of these guys were this way on purpose. It's one of the features of postmodernism. One reason I don't like it is it is I like clarity. I want to I want I want clear under concepts. These guys on purpose were uh, they almost purposefully were unclear. They, they were, I don't know why they chose to do this, but... Yeah, yeah, they, they almost were doing us... I guess they were, like they were saying, well, I'm going to make it easy for you to deconstruct this and make it say what you want because I'm going to be so vague and so hard to interpret that it can mean like 10 things already. I don't know why they did this stuff, but you see this, by the way, in a lot of academics today. Go, go home and Google up like strangest, funniest like uh, um, academic papers and presentations. You'll see titles that I swear to you, you'll read that title five times and you will have no idea what that's supposed to be about. You know, it's like, what is this? These words are all jumbled together and I don't know what they mean. And then sometimes they don't either. They don't either. Sometimes the academics get together and they, they pretend they all know what it means because they're almost, you know, it's like, oh, yes, yes. Hmm. And then after a while, but if they're all honest, they would all have to just go, you know, I don't know what that means either. <laughs> None of us knows what it means. Um, so this guy was hard to understand, but they like some of his just real basic concepts. So because he's hard to interpret, I bullet pointed a few things with the help of a man that I took in seminary once. I don't know if he's still around. Millard Erickson, great theologian, 
uh, Millard Erickson, and I got to take a class with him. He, he, he distills this for us. So here are the main ideas from Foucault. Power, all about power. Remember hegemony? Power is primarily political and cultural power to control thoughts and norms. The people with the power write the history, determine truth, what is morally good and bad, and even they even have a say on what's scientifically true. And then look at the, his quote about systems. Quote, system is a sign of the exercise of power, organizing all truth into an integrated whole. And the next point there is that reality is not simply reported by discourse or discussion. It's constructed by it. We're kind of making reality. He also, he also did what he called fictive history. He got that term from Nietzsche, fictive as in fictional. Well, history, you know, since it can't be objectively known anyway, it's shaped by the different narratives. So he would write about history and just write fictionally about it because he said, you know, my understanding of history is as true as anyone else's. He also prioritized pleasure as being of a very high value because he, he had nothing else to be of high value. He didn't believe in God. And then look what he says there. The way to alter truth is not by intellectual argumentation, but by changing the political conditions that produce truth. Here is something you're going to see right now with, all, with a lot of the movements and protesters. They are not interested in discussion or debate or arguments making or they are not interested in any of that first of all they're no good at it they don't have they, they would lose they would lose a fair debate most of the time um, they don't care about that stuff they their method today isn't to debate you it's just to take power and do it like he says the way you alter truth eh, don't fool around you don't need to fool around with intellectual argumentation change the government get the power that's why they're not debating whether or not the statue of XYZ should come down. They skipped the debate. They just took it down. See, that's that's the way that goes. And one of the most one of the things I get tired most tired of hearing, and you'll hear this term all the time, is, well, you know, we just need to have the conversation. I say this stuff all the time. I think we just need to have a conversation about about race. We have a conversation about about money and power. Or we just need to have the conversation about people who are. They keep saying we don't have a conversation, but none of them want to have any conversations. Because as soon as you start the conversation, you get three words in, and they'll be screaming at you or getting or getting violent or trying to get you fired. All right. On the very last page, a couple quick things worth noting. Look, some of these writers identified some things that really were. Everyone identifies some true things. That stuff about mass culture and mass media, those early guys in their Frankfurt School, they were onto some things that we now know are true. They were right about some of that. Uh, but as I said, a lot of the irony is that now all the negative elements they describe are operating for them, not for us. Like all that mass culture is on their side now. Another thing there you see is that um, even though when we get to the when when we now get to the um, the contemporary stuff, it's a lot of it's about race. Notice that the Frankfurt School didn't talk much about it. It wasn't an issue that that wasn't at the forefront of their world, just like it wasn't for Marx. So, even though today's today's groups are Marxist and, and they're using it and their and their primary everything centered around race is such an ultimate thing, it wasn't for Marx and it wasn't for these thinkers very much. I mean, um, they knew that there were racial problems in societies because guess what? There are always racial problems in societies. But it wasn't the centerpiece. It didn't become the sort of, uh, it didn't become the obsession that it is right now. That comes later. But on the other hand, they, some of them did start to discuss some of the sexual identities and stuff, though it still didn't become 
again, I would say something of a neurosis that it is right now. The movements that are active right now have, they're all about race is one, and the other one is gender and identity and orientation and all that stuff. They're, but these guys weren't so much. They did a little bit. They did a little bit because some of them were Freudian, and we all know Freud had some, you know, had some ideas about that stuff. Um, so, here's the importance of that last paragraph. The main importance of all these guys is to know that that even though a lot of us and some of you have been, some of you have lived a lot of years, and while we went about our lives not seeing all this stuff, in many places, in universities and other departments. These people were still being read. We're still being talked about. We're st- there were there have always been those. They just weren't popular. You know, they were just they were over there in that they were over on that campus in that building somewhere. You know, um, they didn't affect real life, but they they were always there. It was shaping these academic disciplines. And then now you've had some student populations all go through there and they continue to sew the ideas in and sew them in until um, now they're kind of like and, and simultaneous to that the church's influence is weakened because the, the culture becomes secularized and now you have a lot of young people they don't have the grounding that some of you have they have a religious need to belong to something to have a cause to fight for to do to try to be righteous you know but they don't have they don't have the true Believe the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So they're ready for a false religion to give them a false cause and some false beliefs and a false righteousness that they can go out and march for. And and so they get indoctrinated. The, the gospel of critical theory gets preached to them. They say, the world is sinful, oppressive, and we must go change it. And the Great Commission is, go ye therefore and march in the streets and, and tear down and dismantle the systems of oppression. And so they go out, and they all think they're John the Baptist out there doing. That's that's what it is. It's 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 got a religious um, fervor to it. And so now that's what we're looking at. Um, is so so that's the next thing is we sort of look at the history to see that there's a history here. Now what we'll do is I want to show you what some stuff that the books and some of these books have been on the bestseller list at the top. There was a there was a video somebody sent me of a lady uh, screaming because one of the trademarks of the movements today is you got to scream at people. There was a la- there was a, there was some some lady screaming with the most shrill voice, you know, at some kind of a board meeting or something. She was at some kind of a school board meeting in some state, and she was yelling at this guy. And part of what she's yelling at him here's one of the things she, she says: You need to read a book. You need to read, and she lists like three things, and they're all, all things. She, you need to read so and so, and you need to read this book, and you need to read this book, and they were all books, right out of they were critical theory books of today. I'll quote you from some of those books, so we can get a good idea of um, of what we have here and what we're. Of what we're doing.